0: What can you say about this fine gentleman? Well, we're only 10, maybe 11 episodes into this little project here, and we've already got two Canadians. Of course, Ellie Greenwood joining us a few episodes ago. And today I'm pleased to present my conversation with Gary Robbins, a man who should need no introduction. Gary, of course, is a Canadian ultra runner, somebody who's been around the scene for many years and who is a fan favorite and somebody who's extraordinarily easy to root for and get along with. And Gary, I was surprised to learn, has been avoiding podcast interviews for three years. Uh, Of course, three years ago was about the time that he had his heartbreaking episode of narrowly missing the finish line at the Barkley Marathons after 60 hours of hard-fought battle there in Frozen Head State Park. And Gary, of course has told that story many, many times. And so I did my best to sort of let sleeping dogs lie, as they say, and kind of pick up his story from that moment onwards. We talked a lot about the injuries he's dealt with since that 2017 Barkley debacle, uh, how those challenges impacted him as a person and as an athlete, what he learned from them. We also, of course, talked about this coronavirus and how that has, of course, canceled this year's Barkley Marathon and thus made Gary's quest for a finish ever elusive for another 12 months, at least. In addition to Barkley being canceled, of course, Gary is also a world-renowned race director, um, has a number of really well-done, well-put-on exceptionally um, constructed and designed ultra races, uh, mostly there on the west coast of British Columbia. And given the situation with the coronavirus, of course, many race directors are now in a serious pinch. And I really wanted to understand that from Gary's perspective. They wrote a really interesting blog uh, that I'll link to in the show notes on his website for his race directing company that really did a good job of spelling out the challenges of being a race director in a way that I really hadn't considered. And so it was interesting to me to be able to explore that a little bit with him, understand the considerations that go into it, the economics behind it and the challenges of having an event-based business in a time when we can't be around each other. And Gary makes an announcement too about something that he has put together in collaboration with other race directors as a way to sort of help those people who are so integral in our community make it through these hard times. Our conversation was great. I hope you guys enjoy it. It gave me faith in humanity once again, faith in the people in this sport who are so special, so I hope you give it a listen. Listen all the way to the end so you understand how you can support not only Gary, but the other race directors who we're so fortunate to have in our community. One of whom, of course, being the great Gary Robbins. Let's get to it. Okay, I'm here with my friend and Bearded Ultra, companion, the Canadian legend, Mr. (laughs) Gary Robbins. Gary, it's nice to see you, my
1: friend. How are you? Very well. It is good to see you, uh, you as well. And it's good to see another human face. Uh, We've been uh, existing in our own little (laughs) bubbles here, so it it feels nice to connect with another human being. It really does. I mean, I've been on so many
0: Zoom calls recently, both for doing the podcast and for personal and professional stuff and it actually is like kind of fun and I've I've really enjoyed it but it looks like uh, out your window there things are nice and sunny as it is down here in Portland as well have you been
1: enjoying the the nice weather we've been having an exceptional April today's April 14th um <clears throat> we had a uh, typical northwest winter here where it was rainy and wet for most of it and we've had a dry spell now sunny and warm spring early summer like conditions for 10 straight days and it's supposed to continue for another week. So it's really kind of one of the, it's, it's that magical time of year where it's a shifting of the seasons and you just, motivation is to get out and do stuff.
0: Right. It'd be perfect if we were all training for amazing athletic goals right now. So. <laughs> if
1: anything was happening, I know. Right. Right. Well, so, I feel very fortunate, you know, in that regard, I know we don't want to focus too much on on that, but the state of the world right now, I mean, we can't, we can't deny and just pretend it's not happening. But right. I, like I post workouts, I post pictures, I I do things and I, I have comments from people in Spain and, and it's like, one comment was like, I don't know if I hate you or I love you right now. I don't know if I want to kill you or cheer you on. I'm right. locked in a in a cupboard <laughs> in a closet and you're posting pictures out in the mountains. So right. it's, it's certainly not lost on me. How fortunate we are in BC and Canada to even still be able to do this.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We feel the same down here in, in Oregon as well. A lot of stuff has been canceled outside of Portland proper, but at least we can still get some fresh air, use the trails in forest park and, yeah, hopefully we'll, we'll get this behind us quickly. And I, we'll obviously talk a lot about the coronavirus and how it's impacted your life specifically. Um, but, you know, before we, we sort of move on to the sort of meat of our conversation, I want to rewind the clock about nine or 10 years um, <laughs> to when I first kind of like learned who you were and, and sort of as a young athlete coming up in the sport, finding people to look up to, people who were sort of already in the scene and established and had blogs in those days. That's how we all shared what we were doing. And
1: If you can believe that, you had to write
0: and read. It was amazing, right? (laughs) I remember, you know, I would spend all my time at work just sort of like surfing ultra blogs of which, you know, yours was one of the best. And I would always kind of read you know, everybody's blog front to back. I was just a sponge absorbing as much as I could about the sport at the time. And I remember before we ever met you posting a video, I think it was on your blog or on your website of you running in Hawaii and having a rather dramatic and unfortunate accident while you were out there. So before we move on to sort of current Gary <laughs> Robbins, who, who everybody's familiar with, I want I want to you know make sure you have an opportunity opportunity to share that
1: that story with the world. Let's let's just roll it right back to one of the most miserable experiences of my life to begin. I love it. Okay, let's start there. It can only go up from there, right, Debo? Um, yeah, 2011, and it was May. And I was in Hawaii with my then girlfriend, now a wife, and um, we'd only been dating for January, February, March, April, May—four months. We were house sitting for the um, the race directors for the Hurt One Hundred. John and PJ We were on the mainland, and they they let us house sit and take care of their cats while they were while they were away. So I had just come off of missing four months with a Jones fracture in my foot. And I was still registered for Western States and UTMB along with like three other ultras that summer because I was invincible back in 2010 when I was younger. And uh, I we went to Hawaii and it was my first 100-mile training week since pre-first foot break, which was back in essentially September of 2010. So launched into the week, was getting 100 miles of training on technical burly Hawaii Ridgelines, was loving every bit of it. And on day five of seven, I had said to to my to Linda, I, these ridges are so gorgeous, you know, it'd be amazing if we did like a helicopter flight or something over this island. Like, I just can't even imagine how beautiful it would be from the air. Uh, 24 hours later, while wearing a GoPro on my head, I was running the Hurt 120 mile loop and I was doing it for time because I'd never had a chance to do that before. And I was about uh, 14 miles into this run, and on a flat section, relatively non-technical, and I actually heard my foot break a second time. Mm-hmm. I refractured this Jones fracture; it had not healed 100. percent I got back to things too quickly. I was kind of misguided or misdirected um, in in some elements there. And I was wearing my GoPro when my foot broke, and and and. It was such an emotional, crazy experience to and to recognize, first and foremost, my, my season was gone, my foot was broken, I was going back on crutches. I was on an isolated section of trail. I was by myself. I didn't have a cell phone. I didn't have any way to communicate with people. I then had to three-legged hop almost two, a mile over a mile and a half on technical, rooty, rocky terrain,
0: meaning you're and on I fr- you're on two, two hands and a foot. Is Correct. That
1: what you mean by three-legged. <laughs> I was yeah, that's right. So so, so yeah, three-legged, three-limb, three-limbed, <laughs> yeah. three-limbed. Um, <clears throat> and I forgot I was wearing the camera. I forgot it was on because of the the drama that had unfolded. And um and I, but I knew where I had to get to. I knew that one of the main intersections would have some traffic, and I'd probably find some people there. So it took me forty-five minutes to excruciatingly get myself to that point. And then I yelled out and got some assistance and. Um, and they had a phone, and Linda had a phone, and I was able to call her, and she was out on a separate trail, and she was able to come meet me, and I was laying on a, at a signpost with my leg up, and it was the first time that we ever told each other we loved each other.
0: <laughs> oh my God, what a story. <laughs> so,
1: and, uh, and we had to call Search and Rescue, and they said, okay, we're sending a helicopter. And I said, no way, you're sending a helicopter. I just need crutches. I was just on crutches for four months it's like five kilometers to get out of here. I can do that. And they were like, we don't have time to mess around with you and your BS right now. A helicopter is going to be there in 35 minutes. They'll get you, pre- or 45, they'll get you prepped and get you out. So um, the search and rescue crew on foot show up, they get me packaged. The helicopter shows up and it's literally a basket dangling 60 feet below a helicopter. And they they just throw me in. And then this this guy who's like, He's about my height five foot nine, but he weighs about 210 and he's like a former running back football player and he's my seatbelt. so he jumps in the basket and just <laughs> grabs both ends of the basket and holds me in and we lift off and and for the first five minutes, I was like, God, it really is beautiful up here in the air, just like I had said it would be. And then we landed in a sports field and they got me to the hospital and the next six months of my life kind of sucked but uh, yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, you got the uh, the heli tour of Hawaii under unfortunate circumstances, but I I got exactly
1: what I asked for. Yeah, Um, and then the footage. I mean, honestly, when I rewatched the footage, I did create I did create a video and post a video, but the video was only the footage that I felt I could watch a second time. There was there was probably fifteen minutes of footage that I was so emotional seeing my own response. Wow. I deleted it because I never wanted to see it again. Like, I couldn't believe the shock that I had gone into and in the and how I was expressing that. So, yeah, um, yeah it, was, uh, well, it was quite the time.
0: Yeah, the reason I ask about it is because, like, obviously everybody kind of, like, knows your story, uh, especially around the Barclay and things that you've done recently with Nolans, et cetera. But, like, I I still remember that, like, watching it at work in the early days of my, uh, sort of tenure as an athlete in ultra running and it being like a pretty powerful thing of being like, Oh, wow. When you're out, out in these mountain trails, you can actually have something go seriously wrong. And it's up to you to sort of, figure it out and for you that meant taking a, a heli trip uh off the island and uh i will post uh, i'll sort of point people towards that video as it exists <laughs> on youtube still but i actually in advance of our conversation i went and looked it up again and it's actually kind oh. of difficult to find on youtube and doesn't have that oh, really many views yeah Especially like compared to the other content that you have up there, obviously where dreams going to die is uh, you know world, world famous at this point. But anyway, I'll, I want people to check that out because I think it's it's worth going back and, and just seeing Gary survive that amazing thing. So to, to <laughs> well, start with, and, these- and it
1: was a. Like- it was a turning point too of realizing, like I was ill prepared. Like you know, it's not like the hurt course is super remote terrain, but it's remote enough that if I hadn't made the made it a mile and a half, I would have spent six or seven hours out there myself. Yikes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it just that take away from us was that we need to be more prepared in our pursuits, and we really came up with policies ourselves, like always carrying your cell phone, yeah. and then that evolved into ten essentials and a. a a beacon a satellite beacon tracker and being prepared yeah um because i saw how rapidly things can change
0: yeah you know that it's interesting you say that too because i've been thinking something similar you know about how the instagramification is somewhat annoying to me in some respects Mm -hmm. and that like you always feel like you have to capture everything and it does mean that you sort of have to bring your phone with you with you know no matter what you're doing but at the same time I've been in situations myself where I've been sort of lost and thinking like, wow, I'm lucky I brought my phone today to take pictures because, uh, this is how I'm going to actually figure out where I am and, and sort of find my way back. So, um, yeah, the carry, carrying of the phone is ubiquitous at this point and it's not all, uh, you know, negative. But one
1: thing I do always do when I'm on a run is I, I airplane mode my phone. Like I yeah. when I go out for a run, I still I'm I'm offline. I'm offline entirely because that's my period of the day to be present for myself to to um, to spend that time. You know, the right mental state. Um, I would, yeah, and I, I'm adamant about ensuring nobody can get a hold of me during my period of time out there.
0: <laughs> Good for you, man. So to transition from uh, what was a uh, pretty traumatic and unfortunate moment in your career and move on to this year, which uh, of course has come with its own adversity, <laughs> and of course, like you make your living as a race director, a coach, an athlete, and are totally enmeshed in the sport of trail and ultra running and are kind of an icon of the sport yourself, especially in your home country in Canada. And it seems that just based on the situation with the coronavirus that you've been sort of like uniquely impacted by what's happened recently. And that's what motivated me to, to really want to talk with you today, among other things. And, you know, at this point, everybody's sort of, um, you know, heard the story about the 2017 Barkley, where you, you know, heartbreakingly missed the cutoff 60 hour cutoff by six seconds after a navigational error on the fifth and final lap after being out there for two and a half days or whatever. And, you know, in talking about how this this virus has impacted you uh, personally, like I, I see it as three things, right? The race director, the coach, and the athlete, And I sort of want to talk about all those different things, if you don't mind starting with with the athlete part. And I don't want you to rehash the 2017 Barclay because I know you've told that story so many times. But what I think would be interesting is um, you know, you and I have at least spoken together about how in the wake of the 2017 Barclay, in the wake of this intense, intense heartbreak, um, you were inundated with interview requests and stuff and how painful it was for you to have to continually relive this like super painful moment in your life and I figured that would be an interesting thing for people to um hear you talk about because I'm not sure you've, you've talked about it that much of just sort yeah. of like how did you balance that feeling of like obligation to tell your story in the wake of such a um an intense thing and and something that really did go viral and even outside our endemic world of of trail running like mm-hmm. how did you balance feel, that feeling of obligation with your your personal feeling of like needing to have space to to breathe and grieve after such a thing.
1: <clears throat> yeah, um I appreciate the the sentiment and the question because I mean first and foremost, this is the first podcast interview of any style anything that I've done in 3 years. Um and and I agree because we're we're buddies and I like what you do and I I, I appreciate how you go about things and I knew that you wouldn't just Ask the same questions that I've had to answer time and time again <laughs> and uh, and the way you've even phrased this is is a fresh take on it Or actually sorry I did one uh, interview with um a German runner of one of my events uh, but not a podcast um but yeah, I basically had a moratorium on on podcast requests and they they run forth regularly I mean I get lots of requests to do things, but I have felt like i don't really i don't want to continue repeating myself it's been my story's been told so after that happened (laughs) just unbelievable to my to Linda and I that like what the f like we didn't we didn't finish like after all of that and then like you said it did it did go viral and I was inundated with requests and my take at the time was if I don't tell the story it'll get told incorrectly by someone else so I wanted to make sure that I at least had my say as to what I had experienced and I accepted all interview requests and I, I did thirty five or forty um, specific interviews podcasts um, and everything from live television on out to radio broadcasts and uh, and then when that kind of 30 day window expired I said okay i've I've done enough, I've told the story. And what was nice about it is, you know, it took about a week, like the first interviews were very different than the last, because in the first interviews, I was still processing as I was talking to people, like what it was, what it meant to me, how it unfolded. I mean, I didn't sleep for 60 hours, so it's not like I have a great recollection of every micro event that happened, but then someone would ask a question and a memory would be triggered. And it took seven days to understand myself what my story was. <clears throat> so I found that to be cathartic and it and it allowed me to to on a level accept and deal with what had occurred. But then I was very much done with telling that story and kind of did a hard, a hard um, stop on any follow-up stuff because I knew that it's just it's just the same questions over and over again, and I had no interest in it. And I had thought that in twelve months, after 2017, I would have a different story to tell. And I thought then, okay, well, in 12 months after 2018, and then in 12 months after 2019, and it's kind of unbelievable to me here in 2020 that I still don't get to wrap up this story Mm -hmm. in its entirety, and you say white whale, and it just, it's, its when things happen this year, it was one of those, like, of course, a global pandemic prevented the break. <laughs> like, what else would happen right. this year? How else would this go off the rails? Yeah. Like, I, I can't wait to see what happens in 2021 yeah. when, you know, it's a 72-hour lightning storm across yeah. the course or something. Like, you just get to that point of, like, you, you kind of throw your arms up and just go, huh, oh, okay, well, here's the next, the next chapter in the ongoing saga of not getting a chance to fulfill this.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, you've touched so many people with the story and I'm sure that like feels good to a certain degree to to be able to um, you know, really have a platform to share your message to keep uh, you know, persevering towards this amazing goal. But yeah, like I just see it as also reaching that point where you feel like the story is told and you want to leave it in the past and keep moving forward and not continually sort of rip the scab off this wound. Um, And as you said, you know, you you have been back to Barclays since then. You went back in 2018. It was one of the worst weather conditions they've ever seen on the course. You got through, I think, three laps, but I was the only
1: person to get through a fun run that year. Right. And I missed the, I missed the three lap, third lap cutoff into the fourth lap by 15 minutes, essentially. Right. Um, and then, and then, yeah, in 2019, I was injured in 2020, right. I finally got back at it and and this had happened. So, um,
0: so pause there on the 2019, right? So after 2018, of course, like you had, you weren't able to finish the race, but it was terrible weather, it was sort of out of your control. 2019, of course, you're motivated to get back there, finally finish. But of course, you dealt with some physical issues. What were those?
1: So after the 2018 race, um, I was out there for 36 and a half hours, 36 and change. And it was really funny because I got home from the race and I was like, okay, uh, I'm not tired I'm not destroyed I didn't even get a chance to go to the space that I had trained to go to so it was crazy to think I had a 36 hour effort that involved what's that going to be uh three fifths so it's like you know 25,000 feet of elevation gain and loss and I got home and was like well I didn't even lose a toenail so how did I even line up for the Barkley like it didn't make sense <laughs> yeah And, uh, and in in 10 days, I basically started getting back to, to running again. And it was certainly, um, like there was a coping mechanism at play for sure. Right? Like the frustration of what had occurred, but I had trained for 60 hours and I didn't even get a chance to go barely beyond half of that. So, um, two, two and a half weeks after the 2018 Barkley, I started having these intense, um, pain this intense pain sensation in my in my left hip and uh and I kept running on it and kept running through it through the month of April and into May and then I went to the Sun Mountain 50k race um, rain shadow running and ran and finished the 50k race but I couldn't run downhill or flat without excruciating pain I could run uphill fairly pain-free So in that race, I ran the uphills and then I was really had to protect myself on the downhills and the flats. And at about mile or mile twenty out of thirty for the 50k kilometer, thirty-two, I I realized I should probably drop out. And then I realized I definitely can't drop out because I'm an ultra runner, but I haven't finished the damn ultra in like years. Yeah, like I hadn't, I haven't finished the Barkley. I haven't been able to do much outside of that. So I committed at that moment to kind of just finishing the 50 K to say, I'm still an ultra runner. And by the time I got across the finish line at 50 K, I realized that something was seriously wrong. And it turned out that I had a stress fracture in the neck of my femur. Um, and I, so I was, I was uh, sidelined from running, um, <clears throat> for a significant stretch at that point from May of 2018. Yeah. But what I could do is I could still ride my bike. And I, I had a road bike uh, that I had held onto for years. I used to mountain bike. I used to do um, other activities outside of ultra running. I used to do expedition racing. And and I loved mountain biking when I had done it, but I sold my mountain bike 10 years earlier. So I decided, okay, well, if I can't run, like I need to get out on the trails. I need to still get out in nature. And, and I went and bought a mountain bike for the first time in 10 years. And thankfully, I still had a relationship with my local, local bike shop and they, uh, they still hooked me up, so I got a good, good uh, deal. Shout out to yeah. Steed Cycles in North Vancouver for that. Um, and I started riding a uh, mountain bike. And I bought a mountain bike, for argument's sake, on June 10th. And on June 20th, I did a mountain bike race. <laughs> I uh, bought the bike, and 10 days later, jumped into a mountain bike race. And uh, I did reasonably well for myself. And was really, really happy with it. And and then I I just, you know, accepted. Um, I can't run. I can bike and I'm gonna enjoy this. I'm gonna make the most of it. Linda and I were planning to go to Colorado for hard rock to support and pace and be there in July, but I couldn't run, so we altered our plans and went north into a place called the South Chilcotins, where you can mountain bike into Alpine British Columbia Mountains, and it's just this this paradisal bike area that people go to. So we changed our plans based on what my limitations were and we still had a great year. Mm. And I directed my events, I got through the season, I got through the injury, it healed up, and I got back to running again. So I thought that I did everything right and I was in the clear and I was now working towards what would be lining up for the 2019 Barkley in late 2018. So in November, I realized that I'd lost quite a bit of foot speed from just not running very much. So I dedicated myself to getting some 100-mile running weeks in in the early part of December. And then I started having this even worse pain in a different location while running. And the problem is, well, right now I'm 43. Then I had just turned 40 uh 42 and i still you still have this mentality that you're like you're in your 30s and you can kind of just run through things because i had a 10-year history of you get a niggle you run through it you train through it you figure it out you don't have to stop and sideline so i thought just need to run through this just need to figure it out but the reality was i would start a run and uh and it would just get progressively worse the whole way through um and on uh boxing day of So the day after Christmas, uh, went out for a 20, uh, 15 mile run and got back and was like, okay, my body is broken again. I have no idea what's going on, but back in for an MRI and I had a sacral stress fracture. So yeah, like, like the the same, same side as where the same side. So left side. Mm -hmm. And, and interestingly, since we already talked about this opposite side to that foot fracture I had years ago. Uh. Yeah, but if you you know if you look up worst possible running injuries, yeah, Jones fracture, especially yeah. twice, and sacrum fracture will be at the top of like the worst fractures you can get as a runner. Well, femur because, too,
0: probably right, and then
1: femur comes in there yeah. too. But but the sacrum and the and the Jones they don't get much blood flow, so they're they're notoriously difficult to heal mm-hmm. properly, and they take a lot of time. Um, I was not giving up on my Barkley dream for 2019. So the very first thing I did was got on my road bike and put it on a spin trainer. I bought a spin trainer. I missed one day of training when I found out I had a sacral stress fracture. And then I got a Zwift membership, bought a spin trainer and was on my spin trainer the next day. And I was like, I just need to go on a spin trainer for the next eight weeks. And then I need 14 days of like being able to run and I'll get back to the Barkley and I'll, I'll I'll do it. Like there was... And, uh, that of course was complete ignorance to believe yeah. that to be the case, but I put in a huge cycling block in January of that year. We went to Hawaii to support and be there for hurt because we have friends and we love being a part of that race. So I had no intention of running it. And, um, excuse me, pardon me. I brought my road bike and rode a hundred miles around the island of Oahu in a day and then did I think 250 or 300 miles of riding that week so I was making the most of a bad situation but with the loose hope of still being able to line up for, for Barkley 2019 that came crashing down very quickly with the follow-up CT scans and, and MRI images that basically said you're not superhuman you're yeah. you're gonna be out for six months that's or at least four at the time it ended up being closer to six because I didn't, I didn't take the necessary recovery time. Yeah. And, um, <clears throat> and I missed, uh, I missed Berkeley that year. Yeah. And so I get through my sacral stress fracture, and I recover from that. And what we see through this process, you know, obviously, I've got, I'm, <laughs> I'm good friends with my doctor. Yeah. Thankfully, I, I've got a good medical team, like they're, they're top of top notch, top tier, great people, and, uh, and specific to sports medicine. Um, you know, we do bone density tests and, and everything else. And historically if you get these fractures oftentimes it comes from lack of nutrition like a lot of times it's athletes who are starving themselves that that create the deficiency that leads to this these bone uh bone breaks and that's not me i'm um i'm not the leanest person and i don't cut calories and and i do what i do for for life fitness um and health and happiness and and not to be 110 pounds trying to run a marathon pr so there was a gap in like what was causing this versus what normally causes this. Um, but I got through that injury and I got back at things again in the summer of 2019. And I was enjoying my summer and then all of a sudden on October 5th or 6th, I woke up and I went, you've gotta be kidding me. I felt a pain in that zone and I, it was all too familiar. Yeah. And I stopped running immediately. And I contacted my doctor, and it was three weeks later that I got in for an MRI, and I went straight back to biking. And he said, basically, like, I, I can't believe you you can sense this. You've got a stress reaction in your iliac bone. So wow. left side, same like all same vicinity, but yeah. vi- but di- but slightly different. Um, so I I essentially caught this stress reaction before it w- became a stress fracture, and spent a couple of months not running which allowed that to heal before that got critically worse. So through this, obviously, I'm soul searching, like, why is my body faltering so much right now? And what I realized was (laughs) I had to go all the way back, like, six years to 2014 at the Hurt 100. And in January of 2014, I was running the Hurt 100, 2014 or 13, um, 13 maybe, and I was at mile, or maybe 14, I was at mile 90, I was leading the race, and I cracked my foot off of a root and had this excruciating pain in my foot, and if I wasn't at mile 90, I would have dropped out, but I ran through to the finish, won the race, and then had, had a major foot issue, a metatarsal issue, for months afterwards, and this metatarsal issue never, ever got never healed properly. And over a period of then four, five plus years, it got minimally, but consistently worse. Mm -hmm. So I was able to continue training, continue racing. And through the first year, every now and then I'd have a weird day and my foot would really hurt a lot and it would compromise my run. And then through the second year, I'd be like, I'd have a bad week with my foot. And then in the third year, I'd be like, I'd have multiple weeks of like my foot feeling funky. And what my foot ended up doing over a period of five plus years is my toes on my foot started splaying and spreading and they alter my foot strike and the way my biome- I biomechanically hit the ground because they're trying to protect this injury in my foot. Mm-hmm. Yep. So what was happening from these injuries is my foot was hitting the ground and my foot was flexing to stop my arch from collapsing properly. And it was creating an unnatural stress force. And that stress force goes right up your chain and where's the, the weakest link in that chain? It's all gonna come into this hip area. Yeah. So my hips are collapsing. I'm getting these, these stress fractures in these small bones in these isolated places, because you're not gonna, you're not gonna um, greatly influence the larger bone, even though I got the neck of the femur the first time. Um, so I basically, Said to my doctor, you know, I think this has to be what's happening. Like, it has to be my foot's collapsing. It's not my my mechanics are broken. The stress force is coming up. And he said, Yeah, that's an interesting theory. Like, we we should look at that a bit further. So I started working on trying to get like a custom orthotic that would alter my foot strike, and had zero success. And in November past, so six months ago, so this is just after I've gotten clear of the iliac stress reaction. So I got a follow-up CT scan that was like, yeah, things are good. You can, you can continue to, to load volume here. I went to see uh, a renowned, nationally renowned doctor in lower limb foot specialty and have a lot of respect for this person as an individual. Um, and essentially, we sat down, he looked at things, and he said, listen, I think what's happening is that your, your fourth toe, the next, next to your pinky toe, it just it it elevates too high and it drives the bone down into a tendon underneath and like there's he's talking, thinking out loud, and he's like, shave the bone down, da-da-da. He's like, Yeah, there's you know, there's nothing I can do for this, there's no surgery that's gonna fix this, it's not a tendonopathy, it's not um metatarsalgia, there's 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 nothing I can do that's gonna fix this for you. And and then he says, You know, how old are you now? Forty-two, right? Yeah. You've had a good run. I mean, I'm sorry that running means so much to you, but the reality is, like, you're getting old. And he goes, "I'm 46. I feel it every day. Like, it's just not the same in your 40s." And he goes, "You know, like, I'm, I'm sorry that uh, that I can't do more for you, but, uh, but the reality is, like, this is probably it, and you should probably start looking at some other stuff. And uh, yeah, there's, there's really nothing medically that can be done to, to fix your foot. Yeah. And I, like, you, you have this ringing in your ears. Yeah. And it's a mix of like shock and anger. And then I I just I just start blurting stuff out where I'm like, well what 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 about what about an orthotic? What about what about if I tape my toes together? What about this? What about this? What about this? And he's like, Yeah, yeah, try things. Sure, try things. Yeah, you know, let me know how it goes. And this was an hour from home. And that was like the longest hour of my life driving home in November, six months ago. Um mid almost to the day. It was right around the middle of the month and just kind of going, Well, shit, like, is this it? Am is this my story? Am I am I going is the is the end of my running journey gonna be the twenty seventeen Barkley Marathons? Is that gonna be like it? Because no. I'm not o I'm not okay with that being the end of the story. Yeah. And I got home and Talked to my wife and and it was just like, God, like there has to be an answer for this. Like this can't, like, this can't. And the other thing that that upset me about what he said was when he said, like, I'm sorry that running is like it defines you or it's who you are or it's your everything. Cause I was like, listen, running's a big part of my life, but I love skiing, I love biking, I love sports in general. Like, I don't need running to be a happy person. I do need to get the Barclay marathons behind me. But once it's behind me, I don't need to be doing 100-mile training weeks. I don't need to be doing six ultra races a year. I just want to close this chapter so I can do more ski touring and I can do more bike adventures and I can incorporate more specific balance with things. So anyways, I wake up the next day and I start messing with my foot and I'm trying to see what hurts and what doesn't and I'm trying to figure out things out. And I'm like, okay, it's clear that like my toe is way the hell out. And I had a foot scan a year prior. And it showed that my right foot was a normal D width and my left foot was 2E, which had never been. So my foot was really splayed. So I took that fourth toe and I taped it to my third toe and put on shoes and went for a a 45 minute run. And what was happening prior to this is I could run, I could go uphill and downhill with relative reasonable little pain because you're on your toes or Mm -hmm. you're on your heel. But rolling through a run, like running flat, had been excruciating and all but impossible for over a year a year and and a bit so I knew the test of my foot was can you can can I run three miles on flat terrain and I ran three miles and I came home and I I said to Linda I was like you know it it didn't didn't really hurt it felt pretty good but she's like okay so I got up the next day taped my toes went out for another run Next day, and it was I was five or six days before I was willing to even even allow my emotions to believe that maybe I had found something that could work for me. Yeah, and and finally, after a week, I was like, "This, I I have seven days of data. I'm doing things I couldn't do without pain. Literally yesterday, um, and certainly not over the last year and a half. So, from the middle of November for the last six months, my toes have been taped together essentially 24 seven and simply taping my fourth toe to my third toe brings my foot back in line and allows my foot to biomechanically strike the ground properly. So my arch is not collapsing. It's being supported yeah. and that combined with a specific strength and conditioning program for my hips, my glutes, my, my core. And that's that section of my body that had yeah. had fallen and been um, overcompensating for years with the breakdown of my foot allowed me to all of a sudden run again. Right. And I, I went, oh my God, I might actually be able to get back to the Barkley Marathons. Like literally a week ago, I was confronted with you're too old, retire, yeah. move on with your life. And I was like, I might get another shot at this. Yeah. So what I did through November and December was I made sure to load as little run volume as necessary while getting as much bike volume as necessary so i wanted to get a good f- layer of fitness before i was going to start loading my foot cuz i had no idea if this is going to last a month a week yeah. two two months so i wanted to only do the run volume i needed to for the barkley because i just needed to get through that race cool So and then in I gen- wanna,
0: yeah i want to stop you there though and 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 uh first kind of like Paraphrase everything you just said. I Basically, that means, though, that you were kind of out of running for like 18 months for the most part uh, with a few stops and starts along the way. But serious injury after serious injury mm-hmm. and still feeling this weight of pressure obligation to be an athlete and to get this Barkley monkey off your back. Like on an emotional level, what was that like for you as you were going through it? Like, and you talked about sort of like, you know, running being kind of like who you are and your identity. And this is something that I've been confronted with a lot and something that we've talked a lot about personally, mm-hmm. in our our times hanging out together over the last six months. And I think something that's important for the listeners to to sort of consider as well is like how these injuries impact our relationship with ourselves. Uh, before we we move on to this year's Barclay, which of course I so want to talk something
1: about. yeah, and and thanks for cutting me off because I was just starting to rant a little bit there, but <laughs> <laughs> the so I, I I love that question because it really hits at the essence of things here. Where you know, as long as the promise of being able to run eventually was there, I was okay with whatever time frame that was going to be to get back to it, and. What is most meaningful, what I've really come to understand in the last 18 months is I don't need to be a runner. I don't need to be an athlete. I need to get outside, to get in the forest, to get on the trails, to get in the mountains. However I go about that is irrelevant. It is a conduit to happiness, to fulfillment, whether it is the bike or the skis or my feet it doesn't matter to me how I go about it, it's as long as I can go about it. So what? what is interesting about that 18 months, if I contrast that with where we started 11 years ago with the Jones fracture, in a calendar year from late 2010 until late 2011, I was on non-weight-bearing crutches for eight and a half months. I couldn't do anything. Yeah. I, and what I ended up doing was just going to a park on a daily basis to lay under a tree, to read a book, to work on being outside and my mental health. And that was a really difficult year of my life where I was I was broken from everything. Yeah. This 18 months was very different because I didn't wake up in a bad state every day. I didn't have this overwhelming sense of being broken. What I had was I was finding fulfillment in other avenues. I knew I was injured, but I knew it was temporary, and I actually felt like I really enjoyed that 18 months and I enjoyed how different it was. I enjoyed the 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 communities that I met, the 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 riders, the bike clubs, the the partners I've I've come I've I've gotten to know through these sports um has really broadened my horizons and actually made me feel you know I'm I'm very thankful for how that's all played out.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, I just think it's it's so interesting and important to talk about the you know the the sort of emotional consequences of these things and it almost sounds like your history of injury sort of almost made you better at being injured over the course of the 18 months after the the 2018 Barkley Marathon and that you weren't dealing with these like identity crisis issues as I was going through this past year of like, oh, wait, if I, if I can't run or if I can't do races, you know, am I a total fraud? And in your case, it was an opportunity to actually explore different parts of your personality, get into biking again, which brought you a lot of joy. And, and maybe you, um, you know, didn't come with that kind of like emotional baggage as much. Although well, I'm to sure your it was-
1: point in 2011, I vividly remember That is exactly the process I went through is what you said. And I called it my mortality as a runner. So in 2011, I was faced with my mortality as a runner. This Jones fracture is not an easy thing to recover from. And I did have a doctor tell me you might not be able to run down mountains and technical trails like you once did. And I had to understand and, and I was confronted with my identity, what was meaningful to me. And I went through that 10 years or eight years prior. So- I was better equipped with the latest injury yeah. because at that point in 2011, that was a turning point for me where when I was confronted with that, I realized that I wanted to be a part of ultra running and trail running for my the rest of my life. And I wasn't going to be an elite athlete for the rest of my life it's a it's a finite window that we all and it's different for all of us and the fact that i'm even still competing at a high level 10 years later is, is like feels incredible for what it, what i was going through but i realized at that time my way to stay relevant in the scene and to stay connected to people was through race directing so through that first injury that's where my race directing career began and that's where i how i ended up to where i am today where I feel incredibly fortunate to be one of a handful of people who truly make their living off of ultra running and trail yeah. running my, my running, my uh, events company, my coaching business, and yeah. as an athlete. And uh, there aren't a lot of us that can truly say like our existence, our livelihood is tied to this sport.
0: Yeah. Well, it's beautiful. And I think it is illustrates the the beauty that can come from these intensely traumatic experiences in our lives or, moments when we really can't see the positive in, it, in anything and and those moments ultimately being transformational and you starting a business which has given you so much uh enjoyment and of course i want to talk about sort of like the trials and tribulations of what you've been through recently as a race director because i know it hasn't been easy mm-hmm. but i i want to linger on barclay and i realize that you know this, <laughs> this is going to be a lot longer than i anticipated but um you know we sort of, I, I pressed pause as you were starting to talk about your buildup towards this year's race. And so maybe briefly talk about uh, how good your buildup was once you did start to tape your your toes, as you said. And because, you know, the, for those of us who follow you on Instagram and interact with you personally, know that you were feeling it. You were feeling really good yeah, going yeah. into to Barkley this year and you were training at a super high level again. And then, of course, you know the, your your dreams were dashed once again with the race cancellation. So, walk us through what your prep was like, why why you think you were in such a good place, and what it felt like when they uh, when they canceled.
1: So, in two thousand and nineteen, I ended up doing over five hundred hours of of biking in some capacity, whether it was road bike, gravel bike, or mountain bike. I now own three bikes, which is crazy. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I did over five hundred hours of of riding. And that really allowed, I think, deeper fatigues and injuries to recover and created a resiliency and a, and a strength in some some muscle groups that are specific to running and creates a unique stress response in your body that, um, that I think translates well to then going into the specificity of mountain running in particular. Um, so I, looking back, think 2019, and I dedicated myself to, I said to someone at one of the local bike shops, like my goal was to come out of this healthier than when I went in, to come out of this stronger than when I went in. And I had to keep telling myself that I was going to come out of this. So 500 hours plus riding last year. And when I finally flicked the switch to start running, it wasn't until January 1st, essentially. And we flew to Hawaii and I was lining up for the herd 100 miler. And what was happening is I wanted to test out my body to see how it would respond to a mountain course and a long run. In 2019, I ran 20 miles three times. I showed up at Hertz and said going into it, if I made it to 40 miles, it'd be a huge accomplishment. That'd be the longest I had run in a year and a half. And through 20 miles, I think I was in ninth place at the race. And through 40 miles, I think I was in sixth place at the race and I felt really strong, mm-hmm. but I felt a little bit of specificity in my ankle and like micro stuff that did not need, wasn't gonna benefit from running 100 miles. So I pulled the plug, knowing I had something to build off of and knowing I had a lot of really positive things to pull away from, from hurt. And, and we flew home and I said to Linda, I was like, I, You can't convince me I ran 40 miles a few days ago. Like, I feel good. And that just, that launched me into this Barkley training block uh, on the third week of January up until the third week of March that was, in all my years of training for the Barkley, I think it's the least I've struggled mentally to be motivated to go. It's always gonna be a slog. It's always gonna to be tough. You're gonna to have days that you don't wanna do it. And for some reason, I just didn't have that same deep level of suffering mentally, the anguish that I had to fight through at other times. And it's because I felt fortunate to be back. I could cherish being out there. There was something yeah. to to celebrate. The training went was, um, <clears throat> it could not have been any better, physically, mentally, and emotionally. And then my last training session I've always done for Barkley is this overnight session where I carry all my supplies and then I do 10, 11, or 12 hours of mountain repeats from kind of sun down to sun up. Um, so an and I over, do an overnight
0: run of just like monotonous hill reps on the grouse ground. Exactly. Grind, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, with, and I accumulate over 20,000 feet. So I don't, I do the workout until I get 20,000 feet of of vertical. Um, we moved to Chilliwack a year ago. So I did it on this local, uh, peak called Elk mountain headed out frigid night, like got down below freezing. My water bottles froze. But As I was leaving the NBA canceled their season and the NHL, I was watching an Edmonton Oilers hockey game. And I said to Linda, I think this is the last hockey game we're going to get to watch this year. And I'm going out to do a 12-hour training session for Barkley, which is in two and a half weeks, and it's not going to happen. But we don't know for certain. So I left, and then literally for 11 hours, all I thought about was, like, this is a waste of my freaking time. (laughs) Oh, my God. I can't believe I'm out here doing this right now. And the next morning, I, I I drove home. And I was out of service. And as soon as I got back into service at 9 a.m., I called my business partner for events. And we had a race we were supposed to be directing in 36 hours. And I was like, we need to cancel our race. Like, and, and then that went to like, well, now we got to cancel almost everything. So the Berkeley training was, it could not have gone any better. And and again, I did this this 21,000-foot workout. and And like 72 hours later, I was like, how do I feel normal? How am I not destroyed from this right now and i know that if the barkley had occurred i would have been in one of the best physical states that i and and mental states that i'd ever been for the race
0: yeah so is john kelly still the last person to finish the race from the infamous 2017 year correct wow that's crazy yep so to sort of touch a little bit more on this human element of the sport which I think is just so interesting and um, especially as it's applied to you and your family. um, I want you to talk a little bit about like what this race has meant to, to your family. And I, I, I asked specifically because we've been able to interact personally uh, over the last six months, a couple of times, and I've gotten to hang out with Linda and um, in our talks that we've, we've done now a couple of times, um, you show a documentary that's made about um, the 2018 race, the year that it was really bad weather, and Linda saying something to the effect of, you know, I want Gary to to be here because he wants to be here, not because he feels like he has to prove that it's possible right and you can yeah. tell and they do such a good job of of documenting this you can tell just like how intense it is for your whole family not just for you you know that this whole barkley mission can you talk a, a bit about you know how how it's impacted your whole family with you and and linda and your son and yeah all that
1: stuff? yeah it's um and that's the hardest part about this is that it is such a unique race and it has such a un- uh, unique uh, demand physically on the body that it doesn't complement well with training for normal ultra pursuits. And, and when you do get out onto lap five and you do push yourself through that 60 hour barrier and you're doing upwards of what is now almost 70,000 feet of vertical in this race, like you don't recover in a couple of weeks. Mm. You literally take months of being completely smashed and it doesn't really allow you to have a normal year of ultra running, you know, in a normal year, you could race a 50 miler, you could race a hundred K, you could race a hundred miler and you could do a 50 K and you could do all of it at a high level and be really happy with your year. And what I find, what has been hardest with the Barkley, I said recently somewhere that like, it feels like it's kind of stolen like four to five of my really good years as a runner, because it, Mm -hmm. it has, and the training for it is so specific. Like it just doesn't, you can't train for the Barkley and then go run Western States or something. Right. right? Yeah. Um, and and that's been really challenging for, for me to accept as like, it's just become so much bigger and longer of a pursuit than I ever thought it, it would be. And my family have to be in, involved in that as well. And I mean, a testament to my wife and her, her selflessness with this is she's never once questioned it. She's never once um, made me feel like it's a, it's an issue with us. Um, for me to do it she has to be all in there's a greater stress on her as a mother with our child when I'm going out for two to four hours a day seven days a week to do this training through the winter and what was hardest for me to accept emotionally this year with the race being cancelled was the fact that I'm going to be 44 next year and we just would like to have a different version of a winter season than this has given us (laughs) (laughs) Now, my wife is also an ultra runner, amazingly accomplished. She's done over 100 races of marathon distance or above. She has more belt buckles than I do. And there's give and take. Like I I posted months ago about thanking her for stuff and people um, and how supportive she is. And that is absolutely true. One of the reasons she's able to be so supportive is because it's reciprocated. I have a great level of respect and admiration for who she is and what she does and and there's a give and take. We would schedule our years where the Barkley would be my big pursuit early in the year, and then Linda would do her hundred miler later in the year. She did Fat Dog 120. She did Tianna Way 100 miler in September. Um, she would have her pursuit. So it, um, you know, if anybody is out there going, "Oh, Linda, that, that she's so supportive of everything," I wish I wish my wife was that supportive. And it's like, yes, well, try being that supportive yeah. of of that person as well. And reciprocate and see how that goes. Um, so, we do have a great relationship. We are very supportive. And um, it, it's taken a lot out of us to continue to have this as a part of our lives. Yeah. Now, it's not to say that there hasn't been positives from the Berkeley. I mean, certainly um, we did the Where Dreams Go to Die film tour yep. in 2000 and late 2017. And that was an incredible experience. We went through 17, 17, uh, showings in 14 cities. We sold out 10 cities. Um, it was a really magical thing to be a part of and it's brought a lot of positive things into my life. Um, but I would give anything to just have the story wrapped up as I want to see it with a finish.
0: Yeah. Well, it sort of leads into another thing that I think is relevant and interesting to ask about. Like, obviously where dreams go to die was like a, sensation. Like you said, you sold out theaters. It, you know, has been viewed probably over a million times on YouTube. Weirdly
1: enough, fun. we were on YouTube last night looking up old yeah. uh, videos of our, our dog that passed away a couple of years ago, yeah. Roxy, and watching some of those. And where Dreams Go to Die populated and it's 1.2 million views.
0: It's amazing, right? And yeah. So
1: like even
0: though it was a it was a <laughs> an experience that I'm sure you'd like to forget in a lot of ways, it's touched so many people. And for you, like, you've also had a great career as an athlete, right? Like, you still have the CR at the Hurt 100 from 10 years ago, an insanely mm-hmm. fast time. You had the FKT on the Wanderland Trail. You finished Nolan's, for God's sakes, which very <laughs> few people have ever done, among many other things. But, like, the thing that you have are most known for or the reason why or the, the thing that you've touched the most people with is this like super high profile failure right does, mm-hmm. does that piss you off at all so like can you talk to about, an like, extent
1: that, yeah, yeah the yeah. problem with that is you know is that i have realized that i am going to be known to the majority of the people who will never know me as one of two things i will either be a Berkeley finisher or that guy Who missed by six seconds? Yeah, there is no in between. There, the the one point two million people who watched the movie have gotten a positive experience from it, and it's it's great that they have. But they're going to know that or the finisher. They're never going to know about Noel, and it doesn't matter if they know about these things or not. But but it does piss me off a little bit that like the thing that became the viral part of my life ended up being the thing that's hurt the most emotionally to have to deal with
0: yeah well god bless you man and you know, you've <laughs> you've already proven yourself capable it's just a matter of like some good luck finding finding you finally um <laughs> so last thing before uh we sort of move on from the Barkley, and i promise i didn't intend to sort of talk about it this, this much but i think it's interesting is so you know last year hard rock was my main objective of course i was hurt all year last year too hard rock was ultimately canceled is there any part of you – and in retrospect, I think it was a good thing just based yeah. on the fact that I was going through injuries and stuff. Um, and, of course, now it looks like Hard Rock will in all likelihood be canceled again this year, barring a miracle. But yeah. um, I, I'm wondering if there's any part of you who feels like, oh, well, like now I've got my my foot figured out. I'm getting back to health. I re- would have had a really compressed training camp anyway going into Barkley this year maybe it's a good thing that you know it's delayed another so
1: year? it's a good question the problem with that is that i just don't know what my foot's going to do like it's yeah. literally being held together with tape right now like yeah. i i was out um i was out running a couple of days ago and having a great run and i just had that thought this thought of like well what happens if this stops working yeah. what if What if? I don't know, right? It's not a solution. It's it's a quite a literal band-aid solution. So if it does end up proving to be this magic bullet that is that has sustain, then absolutely, I mean, yeah, I'll I'll be fitter than ever, I've got time to focus on it, and it'll be great to just be be able to do summer mountain missions again. But my deeper worry and concern, and I'm not a worrisome person, I'm 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 pretty uh, optimistic person. But certainly with the reality of what I've been up against for these for this time frame is I don't know if, that, if it's going to solve things and if it's temporary. And that was the pressure I felt was go all in on Barkley, get through it no matter what, mess your foot up if it takes it. And then I can deal with being a balanced athlete with different sports afterwards. And I'll continue to do that. Like I'm still doing a lot of biking now along with the running. I was out on my mountain bike yesterday, my gravel bike a few days ago running. So I will continue in my forties to train differently anyways. And I won't just load volume on necessarily, but there is that uncertainty as to like, is this a solution or is it a band aid that will prove futile in another six months?
0: Yeah. Interesting. Well, yeah, like I said, you know, as an outsider, I can certainly see a little bit of upside in it, even if you might be struggling to <laughs> give you an, an extra twelve months of of hopefully healthy training going yeah. into what is the, the most burly of physical uh, endeavors that you could ever imagine. So, okay, moving moving on from the Barkley, of course, you know, the other thing that I, I really wanted to talk to you about today is your business as a race director and how that has really also been flipped on its head as a result of this global pandemic. And I, when I saw the announcement that you made about, you know, canceling virtually the entire season, at least up until uh, September, you know, I, I admit that I sort of felt like, wow, that seems like a, a really rash judgment. And it wasn't until I actually read the blog that you guys wrote and put up on your website, explaining mm-hmm. the rationale where I, I actually felt like, oh, wow, I, I'd never considered the things that race directors have to have to contemplate in these situations. And so first of all, I'd love to point people in the direction of that blog, because I think it's really worthwhile reading, but want to kind of paraphrase it here. Um, because I think, you know, I sort of had this false impression that races could just wait until the last minute to, to cancel, you know, it's sort of like, why do you need to cancel uh, squamish yeah. in August and you explained it in the blog post and I want you to kind of go through the rationale you know behind this agonizing decision and, and sort of like the economics around it so people can kind of understand what it's like to be a race director.
1: Yeah, certainly uh, not easy decisions to make essentially at the, um, the middle of March or, or the last week that it, it became official. Um, March 20th or March 21st, I think, is when we sent out the email to over 3,000 runners. Um, But it had been an agonizing week of getting to that point of acceptance and and how we're going to communicate it. So essentially, um, we as a race organization, uh, Coast Mountain Trail, running direct eight events. One of them happened in February. One was 36 hours away from being produced in March when we had to cancel it. Um, The third one was supposed to be this past weekend. Squamish 50 is the most famous of the grouping, and that's on August 15th. And we have a race in September in in Whistler, um, in late September. So we had to step back and look at where are we in this pandemic and what is occurring? What's occurring here, what's occurring overseas? So it was obvious we had to cancel the first race 36 hours out. It was obvious we had to cancel the race from this past weekend. But as we looked further ahead, we realized that with Squamish, which is still four months away, we, to produce that event, it costs us over $100,000. And to operate a company, our company in general, there's tens of thousands of dollars that get spent annually with with expenses that people would have no idea. It's a business, it has to be run like a business. So um, even to this point of the middle of April, tens of thousands of dollars of of funds that you can't recuperate have been spent to produce your events. So it's not like, you know, people register and the money is just sitting there up until you pull the trigger the day before the race. Um, we were going to come due essentially this month for over 100,000 dollars in production costs. And the reality was if that happened and then we were forced to cancel, like we're we're facing bankruptcy because there's no money to refund to people. There's no way to ride this out. So but then the greater thought process, the bigger the bigger thing we were up against was, well, how are people going to train for this race right now, and what are we obligated as as community leaders to ask of or expect people to do? If you, we have people from Spain and Italy and 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 you know 15 countries coming to Squamish, Kim, what's the what's the Spanish runner supposed to do right now? Who's registered for the 50 15 is not allowed to leave their apartments. Are we? Are we asking these people to make exceptions to their local rules to try to push the envelope to get to this race? And um, what's our social obligation here, and what we're asking of people? And um, and then Squamish itself is a gathering of with the runners, the crew, the volunteers, over two thousand people. Well, our assessment was even if in August life does return to some semblance of normalcy here in British Columbia, there's a very low probability of being approved to host a gathering of 2,000 people. Mm-hmm. Certainly if it was a smaller local race with 200 people, I would still be rolling the dice on that because first and foremost, a, a solid chance you'll be able to get 200 people together, but also it doesn't cost $100,000 to produce yeah. a 200 person race. Yeah. Um, so we had, a lot of, of, we had a lot of intense dialogue, uh, myself and my business partner with events, Jeff Langford, not once we accepted the unfortunate reality of what we were up against, but how we would communicate and, and, and handle it. Um, And, and the reality is, I mean, you can't just refund everybody their money because then the business has no liquidity and you, you go bankrupt as well and you can't pay your bills and, and we're done. So we did everything we could to really spread the losses over a two year period. So 2020 and 2021 will be lean years for us as a company, but we knew that with what we were offering, it would allow us to get through this. And in, in doing that, it was, you know, anybody that's registered for the race this year for Squamish in particular gets a 75% credit towards next year. Mm -hmm. So they have to pay 25% to re-register for 2021. Mm -hmm. Um, Now with that, we said right in our, our communication, you know, how can we help you if you know if you if you need our help in any regard reach out to us and we had a grouping of people who who needed a refund and a percentage of those people were belligerent and a percentage of those people were very very respectful um no matter how they went about it we refunded every single person that needed a refund what was unexpected for us was the number of people that messaged us and said keep my money keep a registration spot for me i don't need the 75% discount i'll pay 100% again next year you guys keep what you what you need right now to stay afloat to get through this and yeah exactly like our community are is we had over we had over 300 r- responses in in emails 285 of them were like bring tears of joy to your eyes responses of support. Fifteen of them were you <laughs> emails that eventually after sleeping for a few days you find a way to respond respond with empathy and then you delete it and hope that you never have to read trife like that again. <laughs> um, but uh but but we really saw this overwhelming community support for the fact that we were just honestly saying listen guys like we 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 can't survive this if if people are expecting us to just uh, to just yeah. provide provide thousands of refunds and and like nothing has happened. Yeah. Um, so then at the on the last day of March, uh, Jeff calls me, and we have an events trailer that's normally parked right outside my door, but we were in the city for back to back races. So the trailer stayed in there to get a, a few repairs done to it with some wiring. It was parked on a city street. And it got broken into and they stole our generator and some supplies and it was over $1,500 worth of, of race materials. So I tweeted something to the effect of like, well, March sucked. I really am just done with this month. Our, we just had $1,500 of race stuff stolen and I hope April ends up being a better month. And I went to bed and 12 hours later, uh, after I woke up and had breakfast and went online, one of our runners had started to go fund me and all of our money had been fundraised and returned to us within half a day. And I saw these, I clicked, when I clicked on it, I was like, what is going on? I can't believe this is happening. And then I messaged the person that had set it up and I said, listen, this is incredible, but you cut that link as soon as we get to like the 1500 because I don't want people will continue to donate and I don't want to accept donations yeah. from people unnecessarily. So we got, we got our money returned to us, which was ridiculous to, to have that happen. Yeah. Um, and, and, and again, just another uh, incredible, um, shout of support from the community.
0: Yeah. Uh, it's a beautiful thing to like be facing, you know, what could be a bankruptcy situation, thinking about how you can spread your losses over two years. And of course this isn't, this is again, like a, band bandaid, uh, solution right now, but having mm-hmm. the, graciousness and the generosity of the ultra running world coming to your rescue to a certain degree saying hey oh yeah i don't i don't need a discount off my registration you know i understand this is well outside of your guys control and you provide an amazing value to us in our running community and in vancouver area and therefore i'm happy to help you guys through this and i uh had um, the individual who started that GoFundMe tweeted at me, uh, asking me to spread the word as well. Oh, really? <laughs> and, and and I I didn't see it also until like twelve hours later. And I go to click and to make my donation, and it's already closed because uh, people had been so quick to, um, yeah, provide provide their support. And it's just an amazing thing
1: about our sport. So, um, so you, I this this rem- so uh, I I want to do this. So we had we had a whole bunch of incredible emails but the, you know there's there's a handful that really stand out and this one just came to the top of my mind and i was able to look it up real quick uh and i want to read this because i think it's it just it's it's it is what our community is all about um so someone named paul said i want to thank you for the story i've had training for the diaz vista 50k about five years ago i ran by a dv 58 station while out on a regular morning run and your amazing volunteers told me how this was a thing. My mind put these people in the category of astronauts, not people I know or would ever be, but it stuck with me as I kept running these trails. I live in Port Moody. I got to a place a few years later where I thought maybe, and after I ran my first 25 kilometers, I started thinking about it. Then I suffered a concussion. I lost my father, then a frozen shoulder, and I wasn't able to sign up for last year's race. I began training seriously last May and have had a fantastic year. On um, Sorry, I got to scroll back and forth here. On Saturday, March 14th, the day after the race was at that point postponed, I ran 80% of the course, all but the ascent of the Eagle Bluff Road in under five hours. And I felt like I was on track to complete the race in six hours. Thank you for this story. It's not about the race I may or may not have run. It's about the 4 a.m. wake-ups, the going places I struggled to go. The support my friends and family gave me to realize this dream, the learning what my body could do, that the lows are followed by highs and highs are followed by lows, the humility it cultivated and the joy I've been given. Out of pure chance. Oh, and, and he, he ran into me at some point. Like that right there is such a beautiful thing to have that is a response to us canceling this person's race. Yeah. Um and that ultra
0: running. It's such a such a wonderful sport, man. It's just amazing. Brings a tear to your eye. So <laughs> you know, the, in, in this blog post that I mentioned a couple of times, it's up on your guys's website. Um, and you can shout out the URL, but you guys talk about three things that, you know, people who are listening to this might be able to do. I know you guys put some merch on sale, but maybe talk about the the things that we could do as fans of Gary Robbins and as, uh, <laughs> as uh, ultra running, um, you know, aficionados and members of the worldwide community. What can, what can we do to help not only you maybe, but also like other race directors in the business?
1: Well, interesting. You should say exactly that. Um, so Uh, first and foremost. So yeah, we, uh, for us, it was like one step at a time. We had to cancel our races. We had to deal with the fallout. We had to to figure out all of this. The next thing for us was launching and promoting our merchandise store. This is a way that we could sell merchandise. People get a return on their investment. They get something to wear, and then it generates revenue for our company. So we took a, it took a week to get all this, um, launched and we've had three over 350 closing in on 400 people purchase almost 900 items of merchandise from our store. And that has generated tens of thousands of dollars of revenue flow for us as a business, which is just an incredible, um, credible beneficial situation. So TrailSeries.ca has a link to the merchandise store. If you would like coast mountain trail running or Squamish 50 or Diaz Vista swag, that's been really incredible to see that now. Through this, I personally have just been seeing how, you know, races, race directors and and people are, we're all struggling. There are, there's over a million people that uh, that got laid off immediately here in Canada. I know it's a bad situation across North America. So we all want to try to make a difference for other people. And after we got kind of our initial, like, we need some help and we've gotten some help. And I want to try to generate a way for people to assist other races. So something we came up with, it's actually hopefully launching today. So certainly by the time the podcast goes live is, um, and this has taken a while to figure out how we're going to make all this happen, but it's on trailseries.ca forward slash support local. So what we've done is we've designed a specific um, limited edition buff Which can also double as a face wrap right now. (laughs) And it essentially says support local race directors. Um, And it says uh, support local. I support local race directors. And it's a um, a beautiful graphic that our designer came up with. And how this is going to work is if you log into trailseries.ca forward slash support local for 25 Canadian dollars or about 18 US dollars, you can purchase one of these buffs these head wraps but you determine who gets the profits so you select which race director or organization you want to support so you log in and you want to support uh, daybreak racing in Oregon maybe and you just you click the name of the organization the person the website and all profits from that purchase go to that organization so we'll run this for a month we'll see how many we sell and then we'll cut checks to every single race organization that someone has bought a race buff in honor of. And then uh, we'll figure out how we deliver um, on everything else. So it, <laughs> <laughs> my my business partner loved the idea, but also was like, this is going to be, I'm like, yeah, I know, we'll, figure it, yeah. we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. So, Yeah. It's a beautiful
0: idea, man. And I commend you for putting that together. And I had no idea that was in the works. That was organically dropped in on my podcast. I <laughs> that's right. You, <laughs> appreciate you breaking the news here. And we will uh, challenge everybody who listens to this to uh to go ahead and and buy one of those buffs and support the the race directors in your communities and uh yeah, and maybe buy a, a Coast Mountain uh, hoodie while you're there because that's styling. Um <laughs> Well, Gary, like I, I'm super appreciative that you know you spent this much time chatting with me today. It's been a, such a pleasure to hang with you a couple of times over the last couple of months, and and of course, what I'm alluding to there, just so people know, is Gary organizing a, a little speaker series thing with myself and Ellie Greenwood. We did in in uh, North Vancouver, and then again in Seattle. Two of the coolest, most oh, memorable great. days of of my last six to twelve months for sure. <laughs> so, um. But, yeah, man, I mean, I I, uh, I both empathize for you in uh, your situation with the Barkley and with, uh, you know, you having to cancel the, basically all of your, your races this year. Uh, but, I mean, you, you've shown resiliency over the course of your career. You're somebody who uh, is a fan favorite and uh, easy to, <laughs> to, to like and admire. So uh, I appreciate it. As are
1: you, there. my friend. And I just want to, like, thank you for... For reaching out to me, like I said, this three-year hiatus on doing any interviews or podcast. When 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 Dylan Bowman reaches out to you, it's like an automatic yes right there. I love what you're doing. Same to you. Uh, easy to root for, easy to cheer for. You're one of the absolute good guys in the sport. Right from day one when we met at UTMV in 2012. Uh, Thir- uh, 13. 13. 13. Yeah. Um, where you you were going? Through, you want. Of course you had injured yourself there but right from the first second I met you I was like this this dude is a good person um, and you've only proven that more since that date. Uh, I love what you're doing with the podcast. I appreciate the interview and uh, and I knew this would be would be a good experience a cathartic experience for me to get to talk on a slightly different level about what the, the last three to five years of my life has really been totally
0: well i guess we'll just have to have you on one more time uh, on and around you know the end of april 12 20, 2021 12 months <laughs> uh, from right now and we'll we'll talk about yeah we'll talk different... about uh, <laughs> victory and overcoming and uh and all the great retirement that come from, from
1: all sport <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right man well yeah thanks again and take care of yourself up there and let's let's connect again soon
1: absolutely man thanks dude yeah.
0: What a guy, right? That was really fun for me. Appreciate Gary's attitude. Always such a good guy. Always great with words. Always a great conversationalist. And just really proud and honored that he would put a break on his three-year moratorium of podcasts to come on my show and chat with us. So I hope you guys appreciate his openness and honesty and willingness to chat. Uh, Please do check out the show notes so you can... Follow those links and support local race directors in your community. Maybe uh, help Gary out and his colleagues there at Coast Mountain Trail Series. Maybe buy a a hat or a hoodie or whatever they might have available in their merchandise section. And, yeah, let's continue to support one another. I've got another great interview coming for you in just a couple of days uh, that I'm also really excited about. So stay tuned. I appreciate
1: you listening, and we'll talk to you soon.